0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. A disturbing trend has materialized over the last number of years here in Hamilton. We have more guns in the city. At least that's what Hamilton police believe after charting the number of shooting incidents uh, over the last few years. Forty shootings in 2017. That's almost double the 22 shootings that were reported in 2016. There was 14 shooting incidents in 2015 and only seven in 2014. So, what gives? What's going on? What's happening? Let's bring in the president of the Hamilton Police Association, Clint Twolin, here on the program. Happy New Year, Clint. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Clint. Me. Oh, there you are. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, so, what's going on here? Why more gun-related activity in Hamilton this year compared to past years?
1: Well, I don't think it's any one particular um, uh, aspect uh that that's causing this i think it's a combination of a number of different things um i think uh that it's a different attitude on the streets right now i don't know whether it's a, just a simply a more brazen attitude or whether it's a an attitude that um uh, um some of the people who are carrying the guns uh, aren't going to get caught whether it's a push from uh you know other communities into hamilton where more and more of our our people here Uh, who are involved in the criminal, uh, the drug trade and the gun, uh, or sorry, the, the the gang life, whether they feel the need to be protected, to protect themselves. I think it's a combination of a whole bunch of things. I know that in policing, um, with the the recent carding legislation, uh, it's become uh, uh, almost impossible, I'm not going to say impossible, but almost impossible to go and uh, uh, do a a more proactive policing uh, approach where you're just going and speaking to people and gathering intelligence and that kind of thing. So I think it's a whole bunch of things.
0: Drugs obviously play a a part in that as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's... Almost invariably, unless uh, you know it's a, it's more of um, a, a personal type of an incident, I think in most cases uh, that's where you're going to see the guns. The guns are uh, um, intimately related to the drug trade. <laughs>
0: I think what's maybe even I'm not sure if alarming is the word, but very interesting is that you know this increased gun activity. You know, 40 shootings in 2017, most or or all did not happen in one particular part of the city, and and I, I'm I'm guessing that most people are thinking, oh, you know, most of that stuff happens downtown or you know in the in the East End or North Hamilton, but it's really happening all over the city. If you break it down by division, uh, Division One had 16 shootings, Division Two had 10, and Division Three response to 14 shootings last year. So this is this is really a citywide problem.
1: It absolutely is. And again, I think it's illustrative of the fact that uh, it's the type of people who are using the guns uh, that are not afraid to use them. And it's also that case of, uh, and we've seen it more in Toronto, but we have seen it in Hamilton too, if you remember that Main Street shooting uh, a few years ago, where uh, it, the, the, the shooters themselves, the people who are involved, seem much less uh, concerned about the general public Um, it's nothing new to have shootings um, not at this rate obviously but uh, what what's more alarming is the fact that the shootings are taking place in areas and at times when it's really putting the uh, the general citizens at risk, and we haven't really seen a lot of that until recently.
0: And that goes back to one of your original comments that there might be an attitude on the streets that uh, you know I I have a gun, no one's going to get me. That that more brazen attitude. Uh, how what are the signs of that developing, and and has that changed over the past number of years?
1: it absolutely has and i i mean i'll i'll will kind of date myself a little bit i was on the tactical team uh, years ago i started in 2003 and i i can tell you that the you know it was uh it was rare uh we always uh, equated guns with drugs and gang violence and whatnot but um, as i progressed through uh my time in that unit it became the norm. We were only being used uh, when there were guns involved, and that is the case now where where it seems like every time you get involved in something as a policing agency or as a police officer, especially when you're talking about drugs, you are seeing the guns. Everybody seems to be carrying them, and the availability, whether that's changed or not, I'm I'm obviously going to guess that it has. these criminals are more likely to be carrying them and carrying them and using them, um, it, which is it's again, it's one of those things that has really evolved uh, in the in the recent past. And I think it's a combination of a few different things. I, I know for a fact from from people who I've spoken to that um, that the, the criminals feel that the police are less likely to engage them. I, and I will point to the new carding legislation, but it's not just that. And uh, with that. Um, comes a certain level of bravado, if you will, or or the thought that they're not going to be uh, caught if they're carrying. And we all know that if they're carrying, that they're more apt to use it.
0: We're chatting with uh, Clint Twolin, president of the Hamilton Police Association, on the Bill Kelly Show here on 900 CHML. Rick Zamprin in for Bill this week. Uh, there was a statement I read online from um, uh, a so-called gun expert, uh, and I believe half of it Um, this person believed that the number one reason why people people get a gun is for protection. Uh, They don't feel safe and don't have faith in police. I I believe the protection idea, I'm not sure I believe they don't have faith in police. I think there is a segment of the population who have guns that believe in that. But I think I I would lean more towards uh, they get a gun for protection.
1: I would agree with you. Wholeheartedly, there, Rick. I don't. I don't uh, believe that it comes down to not having, having trust or faith or whatnot in the police because your general citizen who's not engaged in this activity, uh, of course, I, I, you know, and statistics will show that they do have trust in us and that they believe in us. Um, I'll tell you the when you look at gun violence and statistically, um, I'm talking across the province and across the country, the vast majority of Gun homicides, uh, we're having a lot of difficulty solving those 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 crimes because those are the people who it, it has nothing to do with whether or not they, they have faith in us. It's the fact that they don't want to cooperate with us, that they don't want to deal with us uh, because they are involved in the criminal element and and don't forget while there's forty I think there was actually a shooting on on Saturday as well. shootings in the year 2017, those are the reported, those are the ones that we know about. And what we do know is that criminals, you know, if if they're shot at and they're not hit, they're not very apt to be talking to the police and, and coming and putting a complaint in.
0: Uh, the incident on Saturday is uh, very uh, reminiscent of, of uh, incidents all year long in which shots were fired at, at a home or at a vehicle. Uh, and at this point, we don't know if the person who is doing the shooting is actually shooting at someone or just shooting at something to perhaps send a message. Is that done?
1: Oh, absolutely, it's done. And it is, again, it, it, it dovetails into the, the notion that people are carrying these guns for their protection, and, uh, you know, when you're involved in a violent criminal trade like drug trafficking um, you, and, and gang-related activity, you, Of course, you probably don't have faith in the police because of, of your choice of, of um, profession, I'll, I'll call it, but uh, I absolutely believe that they are sending messages, and the response to that is that the people on the receiving end of those, those threats are going to find ways, and, and that's usually in the way of guns, to protect themselves, and that's why we're seeing more and more of that.
0: I guess the uh, $64,000 question, or with inflation, the $64 million question is, uh, how do we get these numbers down? Is it it simply more money means more officers means less shootings?
1: Well, it has to be, I think, a multi-pronged approach. I don't think it's just throwing money at it, although I do think that that is a a, a really important uh, part. We we saw our budget uh, being um, uh, put towards uh, the Police Services Board last month, um, what we're seeing is uh, a general downward trend in the number of officers that we have. Uh, we do need more officers as the population grows. We need to try to keep that cop-to-pop ratio up. I also think that, and I keep going back to it, uh, it's there's there's a certain level of disengagement, if you will, by, by police officers with the new legislation that's come out. Uh, one of the things that we found, uh, if you go back to the early 90s, most of policing here in this country had uh, kind of uh, gone to a reactive model of policing. And what we found is that that didn't work. So we moved to a more proactive, intelligence led policing model, which seemed to really have a, a, a really good impact. And what that is is gathering the intelligence from the people on the street, the bad guys, and sometimes the good people too. That involves a lot of conversation, one on one discussions, speaking to people on the street and that way you're able to build that that network of of information gathering and building and that way you're able to proactively go after these people uh, through gun warrants and through drug warrants and that kind of thing. Um, it, it's, it's becoming a, a lot more difficult to do that nowadays. So I think an, increasing, an increase in staffing, I think, a more proactive approach, intelligence-led policing model, and I also think that uh, we just need to continue to, to interact with the public and, and, and get the community involved to make sure that they feel free and they're, they're comfortable coming to the police when they know something.
0: Putting two and two together without seeing uh, any changes in the carding or street check uh, legislation, uh, does that mean we're only going to see more shootings in this city?
1: Well, I'm, I'm not going to ring the alarm bell just yet. I'm not, I'm not comfortable doing that. I think that 2017 is a good example. I always look at a three- to, to, to five-year trend. I think we'll have a better idea of what kind of impact that will have. And don't forget, in the first year, we're also adapting as police officers on how to actually implement the carding and become more comfortable with it, uh, being able to, to, to speak to people and know what, um, how to how to properly uh employ the new the the new legislation so i think that we're going to see an evolution there and i know that um justice tallock who did the review on the oversight bodies is also doing a review of the carding legislation i think that uh uh, justice tallock is going to have to really take a good hard look on the effectiveness and and how this new legislation is impacting public safety
0: got about a minute last question for you you mentioned uh, earlier on that uh, there may be a push from from other cities or or, or, or you know increased gang activity uh, are we seeing with the arrests that we're making in town of, of so-called out-of-towners are we seeing that push from gangs in toronto and the gta moving towards this area
1: well i can move back probably about 10 years and and that's when we really did see um, a, um an increase in the push from the major metropolitan areas like toronto and Region and and whatnot. I can't speak specifically, you know, to arrests in the last year or so, but I can tell you that that has caused. Uh, a ripple effect, if you will, in the increase in in the gun violence, the uh, turf-type wars. I'm not going to call them wars. That's probably not the best term, but competition, if you will. Um, There's a drug trade here in Hamilton, and it's a very uh, lucrative business. And so people are going to not only come uh, to sell their product, but they're also going to stay here, and they're going to protect their product.
0: Clint, thanks uh, for the time today. Uh, Again, Happy New Year. Best of luck keeping our city safe. You guys are doing a great job, and we appreciate everything you do.
1: Thanks very much, Rick. Thanks for having me.
0: Clint Woolen, president of the Hamilton Police Association, commenting on uh, some, uh, I'm calling them alarming statistics because I think, you know, the trend is going the wrong way. We had 14 shootings a couple of years ago, 22 in 2016, and 40, actually 41, with the one on Saturday, uh, in 2017. Uh, the, the numbers are going the wrong way. Now, whether the carting legislation has to be changed or we just got to Pump more money and get more officers on the streets. Not sure how that's going to directly reduce the number of shootings. But hey, if it's going to help, let's do it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Ontario's minimum wage is now $14 an hour, increasing about 20% as of yesterday. The wage hike is in legislation that also includes some other things around scheduling, equal pay and vacation time. Ontario government says the change to the minimum wage will give families more purchasing power and will help build a stronger economy. Opponents say it's too much too fast, and especially small businesses are going to be paying the price, literally. By the way, if you don't already know, but you probably do, the minimum wage goes to $15 an hour next January 1st. So a year from now, there's another $1 hike. Here to talk about the impacts, some of the pros, and uh, well, perhaps the cons as well, is David McDonald, Senior Economist for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Um, so this is obviously a, a much-talked-about issue. Businesses have been, uh, I would hope, making plans to adjust to this uh, new world that we live in. Um, Maybe we'll start with some of the pros and cons of this minimum wage hike, and maybe we'll start with the pros. So what, what's good about this? Well,
2: certainly the people who are going to get a raise are going to see more money in their pockets. Uh, so these are predominantly <clears throat> going to be uh, folks that are, that are not students, not uh, you know, not young people. In fact, you're, you're likely to be over 55 as you are to be under 25 and see a, a benefit from an increase in the minimum wage. Uh, most of the minimum wage workers are actually quite concentrated in in only three big industries retail food accommodation and a broad business category that includes things like uh cleaning and security guards um and in those three sectors um the majority of the folks that make less than $15 an hour actually work for big companies so about 60% of the uh, of the people that work for a company that has less than 500 employees um, would see a benefit from $15 an hour, um, whereas only 17% of the people who who would see a benefit work for small businesses. So, in fact, this is largely big box stores, retail chains, fast food restaurants, that sort of thing. Um, and so, just today, actually, um, we were looking at CEO pay, and for the richest CEOs, the CEOs of the companies that you know, these people who would see a small increase in their minimum wage uh, work for. Um, the average uh, top 100 CEO minimum wage has increased in the last year from 3.7 million that's how much you needed to get on the top 100 list last year up to 5.2 million this year. So, for the top CEOs that run these businesses, they saw an increase in their minimum wage of $715 an hour since last year. Uh, and their minimum wage now sits at $2,489 an hour, um, which, incidentally, you'd have to work about a month at $15 an hour to make the, the hourly minimum wage for the top CEOs. Uh,
0: that is, uh, you know, hilarious comes to mind. <laughs> that That is a monumental gap. Yeah, that's right.
2: Uh, and it's and it's a growing gap, actually. And so the, the top 100 CEOs actually made the average worker's salary. It's not the minimum wage. It's the average worker's salary. Um uh, they'll have made it by 11 a.m. this morning. Uh, so they're not quite there yet, but they're close to making your average salary over the course of the year. Um, the average CEO pay has gone up about a million dollars since last year, uh, rising from uh, 9.5 million to 10.4 million. Uh, and and those, the top 100 CEOs now make 209 times average worker pay. First time, actually, they've broken that 200 times barrier.
0: And that, and that is the average annual compensation, that $10.4 that million figure.
2: That's right, that's the average, that's the average annual compensation. And interestingly, for CEOs, uh a very small portion of their pay is actually salary in a traditional sense or wages in a traditional sense. Um, so about about 10% of that, you know, 10 million dollars comes from a salary. Uh 90% comes from shares and share options and options to buy more shares and bonuses if the share price goes up and so on. And so CEOs are heavily incentivized for basically everything they do. I mean, the average minimum wage worker is expected to do a good job. They don't get, you know, bonuses and stock options and so on. They're just expected to do a good job, even though they aren't particularly well-paid. Whereas CEOs, if left to their own devices, are paid as if they wouldn't do a good job. Uh, They need these massive bonuses on top of their salary in order to do a good job that most Canadians just do because they, you know, they believe in a hard day's work.
0: And you know the the argument that the big CEOs will make is, well, you know, no one else can do this job. But I mean, they're they're easily replaceable, as we've seen from time to time. Whether it's whether it's Apple or, or whatever the company is. What's,
2: what's interesting about CEOs is that um, the more you pay them, the worse the company does, <laughs> and so you get this inverse relationship. And the reason why the reason why the pay gap is growing so much, and the reason why you get this this odd relationship, is that most of their pay is related to the share price, and so. If they can move the share price in the short term up, they get a big payday. Uh and so, you know, hypothetically over the long term, you know, you could say to investors, look, investors, you know, we're not gonna pay you dividends, we're gonna invest profits in the company so we can build a better company, train our workers, increase productivity so that five or ten years from now the company's doing a lot better and therefore the share price goes up. And that's one that's one way to bring the share price up. A much easier way to bring the share price up is to take on massive amounts of debt. Uh, for the company, buy your competition in a merger or acquisition, um, and therefore, you know everybody in the company that's buying the other company gets paid. The company that's getting bought gets paid, um, and the company at the end of the day is much further in debt. Um, and in corporate Canada, is worse off because you have a much more heavily indebted. Uh, corporate sector. Um, but all the CEOs get paid. And that's actually how we pay CEOs in Canada. We incentivize them towards this type of behavior, unfortunately. And it's a huge issue in Canada. We're seeing record highs in terms of corporate debt, a uh, huge boom in, in mergers and acquisitions in Canada at running at 100 to $200 billion a year in Canada. Uh, and it's in part because we pay the CEOs to engage in this type of short-term thinking that drives a share price up in the short term so that they can get paid.
0: We're chatting with David McDonald, senior economist for the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML. Rick, in for Bill this week. Of note as well, with those 100 top-earning CEOs, there's only three women on that list
2: yeah it's a very i mean the, there there's really only been three women on the list that somehow you know from year to year sometimes they'll drop off and come back on uh so there's only two of those three women last year um but in fact, both David and James's have done better than women in the sense that they only had one entry last year, and this year they have three David's being my first name, so I'm particular to that um interestingly, there are five Paul's and four Brian's on the top one hundred list uh so both Paul's and Brian's totally outpace women. So, you know, the CEO group, unlike the folks that work at minimum wage, are not representative of the Canadian population. So there are very few women, very rare to see them uh, on that list, uh, which which isn't unusual at the top ranks of corporate Canada, whether you look at the rest of the C-suite, whether you look at the, the directors and the boards of directors, this is almost exclusively men. Um, and and, uh, you know, unlike folks at minimum wage, where you're you're actually more likely to see women than men working at minimum wage, you're more likely to see, say, immigrants um, versus non-immigrants working at minimum wage.
0: And again, the lowest wage for the top 100 CEOs in 2016, just shy of $2,500 an hour.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so you would have to work, you know, I mean, we're not at $15 an hour in Ontario yet, but, you know, a year from now, when, when we get to $15 an hour... Um, You would have to work for a month at $15 an hour just to make the hourly minimum wage. Isn't the average right? This is just the minimum amount you need to just get on that top 100 list. Um, So it's just a massive difference between what these CEOs make. Um, Some interesting, fun comparisons. You know, if you look at the CN Tower and you say that represents CEO pay, the average worker pay uh, would be represented by a height of 8.5 feet, which is about the ceiling height of a bachelor condo, and downtown Toronto. Um, so it just shows you there's a massive difference between what CEOs make. And they're often the first ones out, the, out of the gate criticizing minimum wage increases. Despite the fact that they've seen a $715 uh, an hour minimum wage increase for themselves, they'll criticize uh, you know, the Ontario government for raising minimum wages for for regular workers by a buck or two an hour. So it's tough to take them seriously when they clearly live in glass houses and they're throwing stones at minimum wage workers.
0: That uh, CN Tower to the bachelor pad uh, ceiling is a a tremendous analogy. And and those CEOs are probably criticizing the government. Not probably. They are criticizing the government because raising the minimum wage is going to affect their bottom line, right?
2: Well, that's right. Uh, they never, of course, say raising their own salaries is going to affect the bottom line. But that's, of course, also, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're paying your CEO $10 million or whether you're paying your regular workers a buck or two extra an hour. Both of those are going to affect the minimum wage. Um, and, and, you know, this is the minimum wage story is really a story about a couple industries. Um, the big businesses will often trot out some small businesses that will be affected by minimum wage changes. Which there certainly will be small businesses, but most of the workers that work for under $15 an hour work for big businesses. They work for big box stores, chains, chain restaurants. They work in retail at the mall, uh, and those are the folks uh, where they're, you know, their bosses, 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 the CEOs. They end up on the top 100 list. They see massive wage gains every year, uh, but they're not willing to say. Uh, you know, I've seen a massive wage gain, therefore my employees should see a massive wage gain. They're happy to say, Oh, I've seen a massive wage gain because I deserve it, um, whereas my employees should not see a massive wage gain or see any wage gain at all. They don't deserve it, despite the fact that CEOs, most of their pay is purely incentive bonus based. Um, they're not expected to do a hard day's work for a hard day's pay. Um, they're expected to be incentivized every step of the way. That's how their pay is structured. Whereas regular Canadians, uh, you know, by and large, whether they're being paid well or not well, and often they're not being paid particularly well, um, they'll work hard irrespective because they want to see a job done well, um, Whereas that's not the way CEOs
0: are paid. The uh, Financial Accountability Office of Ontario, which is uh, an independent watchdog, has said that the minimum wage hike uh, could result in a loss of 50,000 jobs, and mm-hmm. many small business owners have come out saying, yeah, we're going to be impacted the most they're obviously going to have to adapt, and those big-box stores will have to adapt as well. Beyond firing people and rise or hiking prices, what else can they do?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, you can you can certainly—I mean, one of, one of the benefits of higher minimum wages is that you don't see as much turnover, so you see much lower training costs because people aren't quitting their jobs and don't get paid very much. I and mean, it's not like big-box stores have to pay minimum wage to operate. You know, you can go to Costco— employees at Costco are paid $18, 19 an hour. They have good benefit packages. Or you can go to Walmart where people are paid minimum wage. these are both big box stores. People, you know, that's pretty common stores you'd find in most Canadian uh, cities. Um, one pays great wages, has great benefits. One does not. Um, so it's not as if retail has to be at minimum wage. It doesn't have to be at minimum wage. Um, you can structure your business differently hopefully lower your your training cost retain your workers more and and save that sense you know it may result in it may result in in increased uh... prices the prices increase all the time, at least at this point. Uh, they're going to something useful, which is to see uh, lower-wage workers getting a bit of a pay increase.
0: Uh, that's the argument I make, too, with the, with the oh, we're going to have to rise or, or increase prices. You know, we, we've seen increased prices uh, from everything from fruits and vegetables uh, to meats to clothing to, you know, restaurant prices. Whatever the case is, we're still going to be willing to spend the money to get those things.
2: Yeah, I, you know, you go to Tim Hortons and they say, well, there was a frost in Nicaragua and therefore prices go up. Well, you know, people sort of accept that and you pay a bit more for coffee. Um, it'd be great if the workers who work behind the counter got a bit of a pay increase and you know you paid a penny or more uh, on your coffee. I, and the other the other thing that we have to remember is that in Ontario, um, almost almost a quarter of all workers work below fifteen dollars an hour. So. It's, it's, it's actually quite unique. Uh, Ontario workers are among the, the least well-paid. You go to some place like Alberta, which is also considering a $15... Well, they're, they're moving towards $15 minimum wage in the, in the fall of this year. Um, but they actually don't have as many workers. The proportion of workers uh, that work below $15 an hour is not as large. And so one of the other benefits of paying low-wage workers more is that they spend more, likely in the stores um, where they work. So, you know, if you're a minimum-wage worker, um, you, you are... Going to be more likely to to buy clothes, to go to retail, to you know, to eat at a fast food restaurant, um, because you have more money in your pocket. And so there's a flow through effect there that as people make more, uh, they spend more in the economy. And and when you've got a quarter of the population seeing a pay increase, that's a lot of people who got more money in their pockets to spend. And the further down the income spectrum you are, the less likely you are to take that money and and uh, save it. Uh, most folks who are working at minimum wage don't have any room to save they spend everything that they make Uh, and so any increase in their salary gets driven directly back into the economy often in in these same types of industry retail uh food uh accommodation services and some of these business services
0: you mentioned uh, alberta's minimum wage rising from 13.60 currently to 15 dollars an hour that's going to happen on october 1st on the flip side quebec's minimum wage currently sits at 11.25 an hour and it's slated to go to 12.45 by 2020. Are Quebecers and maybe uh, others in other provinces who don't have uh, a, a living wage or a $15 minimum wage going to look to provinces like Ontario and like Alberta to say, maybe I should just move there and, and make a few you know extra bucks and, and live how I'm living now with maybe a little more change in my pocket?
2: Yeah, I, it, it's possible. I, I'm, I'm laughing because uh, uh, just a couple, well, just about a month ago, we put out a report on, uh, on um, daycare costs across the country, and they're dramatically cheaper in Quebec. Um, But certainly when you start setting this benchmark in the big provinces at $15 an hour, uh, I think it leads to some momentum across the the different provinces. Some provinces have to do it first, and then I think you see more pressure in the other provinces to to match it, particularly in the bigger provinces. I mean, Quebec, you know, once Ontario and Alberta move to $15 an hour, I think it becomes... A lot easier for other provinces to say, look, we we need to we need to keep pace here with these other provinces. Uh, the other thing too, I think that we'll find is that despite the the fact that you get these nightmare scenarios from the business lobby um, that says, you know, they're going to fire all their employees um, while giving themselves big raises potentially with the benefits, um, those those very rarely actually come to pass. So you don't see these massive layoffs that are promised by big business. Uh, in fact, life goes on. You know, you pay your workers more; they have more money in their pockets; they spend more. Um, you see your training and uh, your training costs go down. You see higher retention, uh, and the world doesn't end. The world continues, except that low-wage workers get more money in their pockets, and it's an important way that we can reduce poverty for the working poor.
0: I would gather those workers are going to be happier, take less sick days, um, you know, yada yada yada, right? Yeah, there's
2: there's cer- there's certainly a benefit in that sense, uh, and workers that, that make more uh, are more likely to stay where they are because they you know they have a decent job. They're less likely to switch to another job. Um, because they're they're making enough where they are, um, and and as you rely on low wage work, um, what it means is that your you know your employees are more likely to quit, and therefore you've got to train new employees. So you constantly have a turnover of employees, uh, and that itself has its own cost because your employees don't necessarily know your business as well because they're new. Um, and so I think what what we'll find, as we found many times before, this is certainly not the first time minimum wages have increased. Uh, is that uh, life will go on? Minimum wage workers make more; they'll spend more in the economy. Um, unfortunately, I think that what will also happen is CEO pay will continue to go up because these are completely disconnected things. Um, and the other thing I think that that will be completely lost is the uh, is the irony of all of this of CEOs saying that they absolutely deserve these insane pay increases, whereas the regular workers who are often the ones delivering the services don't. I think the irony, unfortunately, will be lost on those CEOs. <laughs> uh,
0: lastly, uh, for those small business owners, predominantly small business owners, who, who don't think they're going to be able to make ends meet, they'll have to fire employees, uh, you know, raise prices, whatnot, do, do you see this as another step towards the rise of more online businesses or, or businesses who have storefronts saying, uh, you know, depending on their, their product, uh, you know what, I, I don't need this brick-and-mortar space anymore, I'm just going to be online?
2: I mean, one of the big points around online retail is that a lot of those folks don't pay tax.
0: Right. Right? They, don't, they don't pay income tax,
2: right? They don't pay corporate income tax. So you're a small business, and you've got a brick-and-mortar store. You know, you hire and uh, employ Canadian workers. Uh, you pay corporate income tax just like everybody. Well, just like, just like other physical stores. Uh, and Then you compete against Amazon and Netflix, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and a variety of other businesses that can register in the Cayman Islands. Uh, and they pay no, they pay no corporate income tax, uh, and so I, you know, I think that there's a there's a variety of impediments to small business. I mean, the small business tax rate is actually going down um, at the federal level, um, and so, you know, if there's there's any discussion of 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 uh, cost going up, well, yeah, actually the tax rate's going down. Uh, but I think the federal government, in particular, could be doing a lot more to actually uh, say to to big to big online vendors, look, you want to do business in Canada, you get to pay income tax just like everybody else. It's not a free ride um, because, you know, you have a website. Um, That doesn't mean that you get to skip out on your taxes.
0: We'll have to uh, save that discussion for uh, another day. David, thanks for the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. David McDonald, Senior Economist for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, a different kind of New Year's resolution not to shop. Have you ever done a no shopping challenge? I'm not a big shopper, so this is the first time I've heard of this. So I thought, we we have to dive into this. I really got to get into the bottom of the genesis of this idea. Artie Patel is a national online journalist with Global News who is challenging herself to quit shopping for the better part of this year. And Artie joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Artie, good morning.
3: Good morning. How are you?
0: Not too bad. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So you are going to quit shopping for certain items for a certain amount of time. Tell tell us about your your no shopping challenge.
3: So it's a challenge that I've been doing uh, for a couple of years now. I would like to say last year I completely failed. (laughs) Um, But the years previous to that, I have been able to stick with it. And what I'm doing for eight months this year is not shopping for any new clothes, accessories, or makeup. And I'm just going to see how it goes.
0: Eight months. Eight months. Does it have to be eight consecutive months or just eight months out of the year?
3: Um, I kind of broke it down in a way where, you know, I do love to shop. One of the reasons why I'm doing this is because I have had sort of addicted tendencies in the past. And I do love to shop. So what I've done this year is sort of carved out time where I know I like to shop. So, for example, around the holidays, I do love to shop for myself. I like to shop for people around me. So that's probably a month where I would like to shop, Um, even in the summertime. You know, my birthday's in June. Why not treat myself to something at that time? So I can say I can shop for those months, but for the majority of the year, I'm just going to say no.
0: And is this just all in an effort to save money?
3: Definitely. I think it's about saving money. But I think more importantly for myself personally and then some of the feedback that I got after writing this piece was it sort of trickles down to why you shop in the first place a lot of addictive behavior, just like any behavior. It's you know to t- pass time, or you feel better. Or in my case, you know they say that retail therapy. I believe that for a long time. <laughs> when I, you know when I buy something, I feel better and I feel good when I open new things or purchase some things. And I think like down the road, that's the bigger issue. So I think for me, it's addressing those issues. But then hey, if I can save you know a couple hundred dollars a month doing this, why not?
0: Yeah, you're all the better. What kind of feedback have you received from individuals who've read your article online?
3: Yeah, so we have a whole movement now on Twitter, <laughs> which is fun. Uh, the No Shopping Challenge 2018, which is great because I think it holds me accountable. But I think it's interesting to see what people have been saying. And I think the biggest thing is that like, uh, most people think they can't do eight months. They think that's ridiculous. <laughs> so a lot of the people online are starting with three months, two months, mm. six months, which is I think is a great idea because, yeah, eight months is a lot and uh for some others i think it's this idea that you know i already own everything that i want you know i have all these things in my closet i have all these accessories i have all these bags and you end up just buying updated versions of it every couple of months just like a phone uh, which i find so interesting because i think all of us who love to shop we shop for trends but then we realize that we own every single one of those trends already
0: And, and again your no shopping challenge just uh includes new clothing accessories and makeup right correct. Okay, so shoes is not in that equation?
3: Yes, yeah, shoes would be part of accessories. Part, oh, so okay. Shoes, bags, jewelry, anything in that sort of realm.
0: And and how did you come up with the 8 months? Why that number?
3: Um, I think in the past, so I've done five months before. I've done six months. Last year, I tried to do eight and I failed. So this year, I told myself again. I almost told myself I was going to do the whole year, but it's going (laughs) to be more realistic. And I decided to do eight. So my goal eventually is to do the one full year. Wow! And um, since doing this challenge, I've talked to a lot of people who have done a full year uh, without shopping and. They say that it's pretty easy once you get down past that eight-month period. So who knows? Maybe I'll end up you know, later in the year doing more than eight months. So we'll we're, see how it goes.
0: We're chatting with uh, Artie Patel, a national online journalist uh, with Global News. You can read her uh, no-shopping-challenge story online at globalnews.ca. Uh, you mentioned last year you failed. What happened?
3: Um, last year, I sort of have a, a new friend in my life who loves to shop, and I think that's what friends the are costly. I always say yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I had a friend who loved to shop, so all we would do is go shopping in our sort of spare time. And I think looking back now, I, I mean, we're still friends, obviously, but it's one of the things that I have told this friend about, especially going into this challenge, where you know, like part of our relationship cannot be revolved around shopping and going to the mall and trends and bargain hunting, and that's the thing. Like I'm the kind of shopper who. Loves bargains like i'm not shopping for designer or luxurious things so i think that's also part of the challenge i think a lot of people think i'm spending you know tons and tons of money on items which sometimes i'm not but i think it's the quality the quantity of it that builds up over time Mm -hmm. that you don't realize how much you're spending so you know a sweater on sale for 25 dollars you may think is not that expensive but you know how many how many times was i doing that during the year
0: you mentioned you've done this uh, over the last couple of years in, in different variations. How did you come up with the idea, or, or where did you see
3: it? Um, I think, I mean, it's challenges like this have been around for a long time and to sort of live more minimally. But I wrote a story, actually, a similar story a couple of years ago where I was talking to a organizing expert about sort of closet space and why people have such a hard time uh, figuring out how to keep their closet space clean and organized. And some of the things that she told me was this, this idea that we are a society of over-consumers. Like, we shop and shop and shop because we think we need, you know, every trend that we see. And it, I don't know what it was about that interview, but it just sort of stuck to me. And I went home that night, I remember, and I emptied my entire closet. That's what she said to do. <laughs> so, empty your entire closet and lay everything out. And even in your head, if you can count how much money you spent on certain things. So, at that time, you know, I used to love bags. I used to love handbags. So I remember like laying them all out. And ca- and I used to have a lot. They weren't that expensive, but I remember just counting. And it was thousands of dollars that I had spent over the, you know, past couple of years on these items. And I think when you see it in person like that, like right in front of you, that's what it really shocks you.
0: <laughs> so how much of that stuff went back into your closet?
3: Oh yeah, that's the other thing. I think <laughs> part of the challenge is learning how to let go of it. Yeah. So over the years, I've been way better at you know donating or you know there's a ton of ways that you can get rid of things now. You know you can you can trade things, you can sell things, donate things. You know I, I even did like a sort of closet sale and just gave it to a bunch of friends for like a really cheap price uh, just because I wanted to get rid of stuff. But it's been a fun experience. Uh,
0: in your online story at uh, mm. GlobalNews.ca, uh, you lay out how you're going to achieve, uh, um, you know, this eight-month uh, challenge, including, mm. you know, laying out your goals, uh, shop your closet, as as you kind of just, uh, you know, told us about, uh, looking at trends, being repetitive. Uh, what are some of the key things that you're going to have to do to achieve this?
3: I think the first thing is sort of not being so hard on yourself, because I think any sort of resolution or challenge that we take, people kind of just go in um, cold turkey and then they think that they can last for the whole year. And a year is a long time, or the eight-month period, or whatever month you're doing. So I think the first thing is not to be hard on yourself. You know, if you fail, if you just buy a lipstick or whatever, it's okay. You know, don't think so much of it. And, you know, continue your challenge. Like, don't give yourself such a hard deadline, which I think in the past, it sort of kind of fired back in my face because I was just, over guilty all the time anytime i saw something so that's my first one and i think the second one is to sort of find a support system uh so i tweeted about it so now i have a lot of canadians who are sort of joining me on this challenge which is great but i think telling someone close to you especially if you have a partner Or a really good friend, and so they can kind of monitor you as well. Especially, you you need someone like that. They need to hold you accountable. So I think support and not being hard on yourself. But at the end of the day, you know, set yourself a goal. You know, if you're saving all this money, what do you want? So for me, I mean, I just don't think about what I want. But I became a new homeowner, so you know, paying off that would be nice. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) I would also love to go on a vacation at the end of the year. And if this, if this can save me some extra dollars where I can go somewhere nice, then maybe I'll throw my money there. So yeah, I it's go- really figuring out what you want.
0: A goal is, is vitally important. There's no doubt about it. And also, you know, when you've had, in your case, if you're doing this for eight months, if you've had a couple of months where you haven't, uh, you know, cheated, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, you, you are able and allowed to treat yourself as well.
3: Exactly. And I think... Um, a lot of people commented on my story, you know, does this mean you're not going to shop for food or breakfast or Netflix <laughs> or, you know, like, what are you actually doing? And I'm like, no, I think you have to, you know, really set yourself some rules. I think not eating out for a year is a very hard challenge for anyone, yeah. or, you know, not watching Netflix or not subscribing to Spotify or whatever you do on the regular. But I think one of the one of the most important things I learned in the past is that it also makes you realize where your money's going. So uh, when the first time I did this, I didn't buy any clothes, but I realized how much money I was spending on makeup, for example. Mm. So I think it all sort of equals out. And then you have to set yourself rules. So I do have some rules. You know, I am allowed to get refills on certain beauty products that I use on the daily um, you know, to an extent, and I have a lot of weddings coming up this year as well. So you know, I am allowed to buy an outfit for a South Asian wedding. So it's okay to set yourself rules. Or if you have a concert coming up and you really want to buy merchandise there, it's o- it's okay to allow yourself to have that one rule.
0: Got a couple more minutes with uh, Artie Patel, national online journalist uh, with Global News. Uh, you can check out her article on the uh, No Shopping Challenge uh, at globalnews.ca. So to prepare for this monumental challenge, you know, 8 months without buying any new clothing, accessories uh, or or makeup. Did you go on a shopping spree last year just to kind of <laughs> stock up?
3: <laughs> you know, I want to say I didn't, but I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> uh yeah, I think you know, I did some shop- shopping around the holiday season and um I I've had a lot of stuff. I think that's as much as I can say. Is I have a lot of stuff sitting and piling on several different closets you know my house my parents house (laughs) in the basement so I think for me the last few months I just sort of really looked at everything I own and I did that sort of lay out your closet thing again right before um, the holiday started I did that exact same thing where I laid everything out and just sort of looked at what I own and you'll find things that you know you bought months ago that maybe you didn't wear or you'll find something that maybe you know you loved a couple years ago, but you don't want to wear it again. And I think that's the other part of this challenge, too, is I think we are so consumed in this sort of social media life where we buy new outfits for every event. And I know a lot of people like this, and I was like this in the past. You know, Anytime you had to go somewhere, you would buy something new, which I think is a ridiculous way to live,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, know,
3: especially if you're trying to save money. Yeah,
0: definitely. Uh, I-, I love reading your articles online because it's real-world stuff, including today's What to Do When Others Break Your Parenting Rules. I think this is oh, yeah. a fantastic topic.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's a fun one. Uh, that one was sort of you know caught on me from some parents that I know who – you know give us rules and i do that sometimes with my um my nieces but my my cousins will tell me rules and then I'll, they'll come to my house and i'll just give them a bunch of cookies you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: and grandparents are bad for this too
3: yeah i know it's it's not fun and it's actually a really difficult thing to sort of even then talk to that person about. And, you know, as I talked to an expert for that piece, communication is really key. You need to tell that person what they're doing is wrong, even if it's your parent or your sibling or your best friend. Like, that person needs to know that giving your child chocolate at 9 p.m. is not (laughs) right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you need rules for the rule breakers, that's for sure. Artie, thanks for the time today. Again, you can check out her No Shopping Challenge uh, story online at globalnews.ca, including today's as well, What to Do When Others Break Your Parenting Rules. a A fascinating read. Artie, thanks for the time. Again, Happy New Year
3: happy new
0: year to you. take care arty patel is a national online journalist with global news again you can check out her stuff at globalnews.ca and from time to time those stories will get migrated to our website as well at 900 chml.com i wish her the best of luck you know eight months um without buying any new clothing accessories or makeup uh as a guy that's easy for me as a woman especially the new clothing and makeup Man, yeah, you can throw accessories in there, too. I just think women like to shop more than men in in that realm. I can't remember the last time I actually bought... Well, I don't buy makeup. (laughs) Accessories? If shoes are in that equation, the last pair of shoes I bought was probably a year ago. I'm not a shoe shopper. I'll buy a pair of shoes and I'll wear it until I can't wear them anymore because they break down. And new clothing? Eh, I'm not... Other people buy me clothes. Whether it's my, my oh, this is going to sound sad my wife or my mom <laughs> will buy me clothes i i'm never clothes shopping i might i might be browsing or looking for new you know new styles or new things but when it comes to actually going to the register and spending money on a particular item of clothing that that's just not me just not me i'd rather save it and let my wife spend it <laughs> Oh, I'm in trouble now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.